Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. President Biden addressed the Russia-Ukraine crisis from the White House yesterday. Uh, let's play two sound bites. The first was laying out the major principles that should govern our approach to what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. We will not sacrifice basic principles, though. Nations have a right to sovereignty and territorial integrity. They have the freedom to set their own course and choose with whom they will associate. But that still leaves plenty of room for diplomacy and for de-escalation. And then he laid out very starkly what happens if Russia, in fact, does invade, how we will respond and how our response this time will be different than our non-response when Russia seized Crimea. If Russia proceeds, we will rally the world to oppose its aggression. The United States and our allies and partners around the world are ready to impose powerful sanctions on export controls, including actions that did not, we did not pursue when Russia invaded Crimea in eastern Ukraine in 2014. We will put intense pressure on their largest and most significant financial institutions and key industries. These measures are ready to go as soon and if Russia moves. Well, to discuss this, so we are very fortunate to be joined by Gary Kasparov, the uh, chess grandmaster, former world chess champion. Uh, he is the founder of Renew Democracy Initiative and chairman of the Human Rights Foundation and a longtime student of Vladimir Putin. So, Mr. Kasparov, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Well, give me your reaction to the president's uh, comments yesterday and what you think the state of play is right now with Russia and Ukraine. It was a very important statement from uh, Joe Biden because it followed shameful comments of German Chancellor Scholz, who was meeting Putin in Moscow earlier. The whole story you know, of, of this so-called Ukrainian crisis, because it's not Ukrainian crisis, it's a Putin crisis. And Putin crisis could be seen anywhere where Putin believed he had an interest, whether it's Ukraine, the Republic of Georgia, Venezuela, Syria, North Korea. And of course, uh, we should not forget and ignore his never-ending interference in the elections in the free world, the United States included. So uh, Putin never tried to hide his intentions to destroy Ukrainian sovereignty. That's why Biden's words about sovereignty, national sovereignty, was so important. It's paramount to mention that the whole story is not about Russia's security concern. It's, not, it's absolute nonsense. Putin knows NATO isn't a threat to him because he's not an idiot. NATO is a defensive coalition and no threat to Russia at all. Putin didn't say anything about NATO when he invaded Ukraine in 2014. But since 2007, uh, 15 years ago, when in Munich, he delivered his infamous speech uh, at the security conference, he pushed his agenda to walk away from the world order that has been established after the World War II. And Putin keeps talking, uh, um, never abandoned the idea of return to the spheres of influence, which meant in his language and in his mind uh, that Russia had rights to control uh, at least mm -hmm. former Soviet republics, if not the entire Eastern Europe. And Putin uh, um, wanted now to uh, force the free world 
to capitulate by accepting his right to dictate what Ukrainians can and cannot do. Uh, and that's why Biden comments were absolutely necessary to uh, reassure Ukrainians and the free world that America is still there and America is not going to uh, be blackmailed and, and bullied by Russia. Well, you've been watching Vladimir Putin for a long time, and clearly he is a master of manipulation and he's a master of keeping his opponents off balance. What do you think is going on right now where it appeared last week that an invasion was imminent and then we get the reports that they are pulling back their troops? Is this a ruse? Is he actually shifting his strategy? What is your sense about what's happening right now? If we understand that Putin's goal is to destroy Ukrainian sovereignty and to subdue Ukraine, to make it dependent on Russia, he doesn't have to start um, a full-blown invasion uh, if he can achieve his goal by using so-called diplomacy. Uh, the trap for Ukraine is called Minsk Agreement. For me, Minsk sounds like Munich in 1938. And that's why it's so bad. It's, it's tragic when you hear German chancellor or French president uh, uh, repeated uh, this mantra. Let's go back to Minsk. We have to follow the Minsk Steinmeier formula. Steinmeier is a former minister of foreign affairs of Germany, now president of Germany. And the whole idea of, of Minsk was to uh, let uh, Russia use the uh, occupied territories in eastern Ukraine. And by the way, Crimea was not even mentioned. That's, you know, that's already in Putin's possession. Mm -hmm. The Minsk talked about these uh, enclaves uh, occupied by so-called Russian uh, pro-Russian separatists. In fact, it's just you know Russian regulars and uh, local bandits, and to make them part of Ukrainian political uh, uh, elite. So to incorporate them with special rights into in, into the body of Ukrainian politics, and to give them uh, um, more or less veto right over any hmm. uh, a future of Ukraine in Europe. So Minsk, at least in Russian eyes, rules out Ukraine ever joining NATO. So that, oh, that's no, what, it, that's, it's, it's more, more than that. It's basically giving Putin the chance to use them as a Trojan horse to, to take over the entire Ukraine because the Ukrainian state will be totally dependent on, on uh, these uh, two regions that Russia control. And they, they, by, by Minsk, they, they would have to um, be given a special right and Ukraine wouldn't, wouldn't be able to move anywhere. But, so, but but yeah. even even Minsk agreement, which was so favorable to Putin, he didn't think that he had to fulfill his obligations. And one of the conditions was for Russia to remove its its troops and for Ukraine to restore the control of its border uh, and then have local elections. So was and that, Putin that yeah, yeah, I'm sure there's no intent to doing that. So that whole episode obviously would have emboldened him to think that he could get away with, you know, seizing Crimea, which he did. Um, it would embolden him to think that that the that the West was weak and divided. Uh, Joe Biden has been trying to rally the 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 West to deter any sort of future aggression, saying we are not going to respond the same way. Do you think that the German Chancellor undermined that? It, you know, the the German Chancellor, you were very very critical of him. He goes to Moscow and says things that um, you you described them as uh, his his comments as an embarrassment and pathetic. So is is what what is the role of the, the the German chancellor? Is he undermining what Biden is trying to do? Is is he emboldening and encouraging Vladimir Putin at the moment? Absolutely. Uh, German political class is corrupt uh, beyond imagination. 
You have a former German chancellor, also social democrat, who is on Putin's payroll. Gerhard Schroeder mm. has been serving Putin for 16 years. His successor, Angela Merkel, spent 16 years in her office doing absolutely everything to increase European dependence on Russian gas. There were numerous projects that could ease this dependence or and make Europe independent from Putin's blackmail. And thanks to Germany and Angela Merkel personally, all these projects have been buried. Putin was very consistent. If you look at Putin's military activities, whether it was Republic of Georgia in 2008 or in Syria, uh, um, so he always looked at the potential um, pipelines. For instance, in Georgia, you know, uh, he aggressed against Georgia, killed the so-called South Stream, the, the gas from Turkmenistan mm-hmm. and Azerbaijan to go via Georgia and Turkey to Europe. Syria, a war in Syria stopped potential a pipeline from Qatar that could also help to replace Russian gas. So, uh, and, and, and now it's this is with Nord Stream 2 ready to be put in, in, in um, exploitation, Putin doesn't need Ukrainian pipeline. So he can, he can afford a war against Ukraine because he has an alternative a pipeline. And that's all happened with a full participation of, of German ruling elite, whether social Democrats or Christian Democrats. And unfortunately, uh, Mr. Herr Scholz uh, is just very much you know, continuing uh, these, these policies. He has been trying to trade Ukrainian sovereignty for German for uh, cheap gas uh, in Germany. So, what happens though if Vladimir Putin actually rolls tanks into Ukraine? Does that does Germany fold, or does that actually bring them back into the fold of NATO? Or does Vladimir Putin want to accomplish you know his goal without actually attacking the porcupine nation of of Ukraine? Actually, make you know a kinetic attack, missiles, bombs, tanks. Look, uh, Putin makes decisions based on on the balance of his uh, interest and risks. Uh, um, if he doesn't attack Ukraine again now, it will be because he decided it was too risky to his fortunes at home and his actual fortunes abroad, especially in the in the United Kingdom. It's not because anything Ukraine or NATO do to appease him, and also. Um, uh, while Germany blocked every project to supply Ukraine with lethal weapons and even recommended British planes bringing these this weapons to avoid German airspace, hmm. Ukraine has been armed thanks to Great Britain and, of course, to the United States that did direct transfer of, of military equipment to Ukraine and also encouraged allies like Baltic states to do it. Will that be enough to deter Vladimir Putin? Because, I mean, that, that, is, that is significant military aid. I mean, that really raises the opportunity cost for him to go in. He's not going to be able to just roll over Ukraine without suffering significant casualties. So have we done enough to deter Vladimir Putin's military ambition? It's not enough because it started too late. But the situation today is different than it was even two months ago. Again, Ukraine is armed now, and let's not forget, while Russia still has superior military force, Ukraine is not the Republic of Georgia. It's not um, separated groups of uh, rebels in Syria. It's an army that could mobilize four to 500,000 soldiers, and many of them already had experience of fighting Russian aggression uh, eight years ago. So the, the cost of the aggression against Ukraine might be too high for Putin. Because these soldiers now have some modern weapons. They have anti-tank missiles and they have many drones. So this, if you look at the, at, at the pictures you know, of Ukrainian sky, there are dozens and dozens of, of drones now 
patrolling it, and I'm sure many of them had a lethal weapon on them that will, again, rise the cost of Russian aggression. Can Putin take over Kyiv if he's pushing hard? Yes, but only if he uses uh, air power. But bombing um, European capital, mm. it's, again, politically it might be too risky, though... He, speaking to, to, to Schultz at the press conference, Putin uh, re, uh, reminded him and, of course, all of us about Belgrade and about NATO bombing Belgrade. And when Schultz uh, mm. tacitly mentioned that it was a response to Serbian genocide of Kosovo population, Putin assertedly interrupted him saying, oh, but we have information that it was a genocide in Donbass. I, I see. Which, yeah, which is absolute nonsense. And Schultz hasn't responded. Well, Vladimir Putin is a, is a master of disinformation. So when when he looks at the United States, though, does he, I mean, what, what does he see? I mean, obviously he thinks that we are weak and divided and he's not necessarily wrong. You go back to the Obama administration, which uh, responded weakly to his takeover of Crimea. Of course, then he had uh, Donald Trump, um, you know, kissing the ring for, for four years. Uh, he sees the United States clearly, you know, politically dysfunctional and divided now. What does Vladimir Putin see when he looks at us? I guess I'm also asking, does he really understand American politics? Does does he actually understand us or does he just see us as weak and divided? Do you know what I mean? Yes. Uh, I think Putin has been surprised lately because he believed that uh, 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 that's what you said. America was divided. America was no longer a, a global player. And he thought it would be a great moment to uh, deliver the final blow to NATO. The, the whole idea of his ultimatum to, to uh, NATO and America that, uh, and that he felt confident he could issue after meeting Biden in Geneva, which, by the way, was a big mistake of Joe Biden. <laughs> and that's, that's because while Joe Biden looked into Putin's eyes, I'm sure Putin looked at his eyes. And Putin came out of Geneva fully convinced it was time to actually put NATO in the garbage bin of history. Hmm. Uh, the ultimatum that he issued was, you know, was unequivocal. So uh, NATO basically should uh, stop, you know, enlargement and also seize its activities in Eastern Europe to leave them at Putin's mercy. And uh, it's not accidental that after so many years of weakness, and you pointed out Obama hmm. administration, uh, it's not just Ukraine, right. it's Syria. And also um, their attempts to, to start a reset ignoring Putin's aggression against the Republic of Georgia and many other acts that could be qualified as very unfriendly um, and the unwillingness of Obama administration to uh, consider Russia as an adversary. We all remember how Obama made fool of uh, Mitt Romney, who said Russia was America's <laughs> geopolitical phone number one. Remember. And Mitt Romney was right. Obama was wrong. I never heard him apologizing for this uh, faithful mistake that actually, again, emboldened Putin to move elsewhere on the, on, in the world where he saw he could make gains, political or material gains. We're talking about now uh, Ukraine, and I mentioned Syria, Venezuela. Let's not forget Africa. Uh, Russia feels hmm. that it could now install friendly governments, corrupt governments in, in, in Africa using paramilitary uh, forces, again, because America was not there. So we, we had so many complaints uh, and outcries about America being a global policeman. Yeah, okay, America is no longer there, but now when sheriff is out of town, uh, the bad guys are running the streets. 
So I want to uh, circle back to a comment you made earlier. You said this is uh, not Ukraine's crisis. It's Russia's crisis, Vladimir Putin's crisis. You had a piece over the weekend of the New York Daily News where you pointed out that, you know, for all of the saber rattling, that uh, Russia is still a gas station with nukes. <laughs> you know, it's got young, educated people fleeing its COVID response among the worst in the world disinformation army spread anti-vax propaganda all over the u.s so i mean give me a when, when you talk about the russian crisis just flesh that out for me exactly you know what what vladimir putin is facing domestically at home oh he's facing disaster because uh russia russia's economy is in is in, is in terrible shape and uh you call it a gas. mafia state. You call it's it a, a mafia. Ma- it's it's, yeah. it's a mafia state, and mafia needs uh, uh, sources of income because they don't produce anything. They can only tax. Uh, uh, they can steal, and uh, they keep you know benefiting from Russia Russia's enormous natural resources, and of course the willingness of the free world to buy them. Uh, it's that's that's how Russian economy has been functioning. And that's why the uh, making Europe dependent on Russian gas was Putin's top priority. And it's very unfortunate that he had uh, uh, um, powerful enablers um, across European uh, continent. Hmm. Um, and also, you know, Putin, while recognizing the, that the Russia is not in the position to compete with, with the free world, it's not even the Soviet Union that tried to compete. We had Soviet Union had some space programs and, 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 and science. So there were, of course, the, the communist ideology uh, proved to be um, inferior to the ideology and, and concepts of the free world, liberal democracy, market economy. But Putin's Russia is, is a mafia state, and he recognizes that the way to stay in power is to force the free world to accept his rights to rule the way he wants, and also it's to spread this uh, acceptance to any other dictator in the world. Putin in my view, represents an existential threat to the concept of the free world. Because while, you know, over decades, we have been moving, you know, towards uh, more um, tolerance, uh, accepting, you know, uh, other views, you know, looking for consensus and reducing violence, all elements of violence, uh, both in our social life and in uh, resolving political crisis. Putin and others like him, all these thugs and terrorists and dictators around the world, they're moving in the opposite direction. So we are just so far apart and no diplomacy can can bridge this difference because Putin sees the world very differently. This is a 19th century, if not if not earlier, uh, uh, view of the world, and it, it cannot be reconciled with what we expect in the 21st century. So what do you make of this weird alliance romance between Vladimir Putin and some of the right wing figures like Tucker Carlson? You know, something I'm I'm old enough to remember when conservatives in the United States would have been, you know, very, very suspicious and hostile to Russia. But now you have elements of Fox News that seem to be Russian television propaganda. What do you make of this? Is this something that that he has cultivated? Is it something else going on? Is it just sort of an appetite for authoritarianism? What is your sense? Um, look, uh, the danger of growing Putin's influence around the world is um, comes from his willingness to embrace any group that is threatening the status quo, that group that is disturbing the political balance in the free world. While the communist regime 
had very little options to 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 work with radical groups in the West, mm-hmm. mainly con- concentrating on these peace movements and and leftist and far leftist groups. Putin can embrace both far right and far left. Hmm. He doesn't care, you know, uh, uh, whether they promote uh, radical fascist ideas or radical communist ideas. So it's not just America. If you look at European continent in France, Putin is supported both by the far right candidate uh, Eric Zemmour, but also by Melanchon on the far left. In Germany, Putin enjoys support of Die Linke, the far left group, former communist, and AFD, neo-Nazi group. And uh, um, that's why I'm not surprised when you see Tulsi Gabbard appearing on, on Tucker Carlson's show, because they both, you know, see Putin as the as someone who is, uh, um, for di- different reasons, uh, um, helps them to uh, see the world through 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 their lenses. Well, it, it is it is the the sort of the illiberals on the right and the left at, at some point seem to coalesce. Yes. Absolutely. It is a hostility or suspicion of liberal democracy itself. Exactly. And, Absolutely. Absolutely. And and Putin Putin makes makes noises that could satisfy both. So he's he's playing his cards. And again, he's flexible. And he is what I call merchant of doubt. Uh, he's not selling ideology, which made him far more dangerous and poisonous than, than Soviet propaganda. Because he doesn't have to convince you that uh, it's something that he's doing is, is good. Basically, he's saying, oh, we're all the same. And uh, unfortunately, you know, he, he finds enablers like Tucker Carlson or equivalents in the far left. And again, it's, it's quite a long list of people that are less known than Tucker Carlson because they don't have the same audience, same size audience, but they are no, no less dangerous. Well, this is an important point because the whataboutism is part of our, our culture. But I think you and others have pointed out this is also central to you know, Vladimir Putin's disinformation is to convince everyone that we're all the same. And and I think one of the the really sort of kind of seminal moments of the last few years was when, and you'll you'll remember this, when when uh, President Donald Trump was asked, well, you know, about Vladimir Putin, you know, well, Vladimir Putin's a killer. And he says, Well, we kill lots of people too. Well, we're not so good. Basically, you have Don, the president of the United States internalizing the kind of whataboutism that we would have associated with the you know R- Russian propaganda rather than an American president. You remember that moment? I mean, that really was where you had Donald Trump channeling Vladimir Putin's whataboutism. Absolutely. Uh, but also, let's not forget that Obama wanted to apologize for American actions. That was, you know, that was his pitch during his first term. So it's the, the Donald Trump whataboutism also uh, resonated on the left. So it's quite unfortunate that we had Donald Trump, or before him Barack Obama, elected to the um, highest position in the free world, while they never shared our beliefs that uh, in American exceptionalism and in the superiority of our democracy. And of course, you know, you don't you didn't expect them, especially Donald Trump, to defend it. So Trump's uh, um, admiration to dictators was so apparent. And it could tell you everything about his mentality. So you had, you know, a uh, feckless Obama administration, and reckless Trump administration. And the damage caused to America over 12 years is very hard to, to repair. And um, frankly speaking, Joe Biden administration didn't have a strong start, though mm-hmm. now they act better than I expected. Okay, so you you, you referred to uh, Putin as a uh, as a merchant of doubt, but you also made an interesting point in your op-ed piece that he's no chess player, 
that he won't move until he's sure that he can claim victory. So talk to me about that, because I think sometimes people in the West look at Vladimir Putin and they see this this really cunning Machiavellian. But you're saying this guy's not really a chess player. What do you mean? Yeah, I always have to defend the integrity of my beloved game. And uh, and in chess, we have rules. And also, you have 100% available information. Uh, I don't know about your plans, what is being cooked in your in your head, but I could see all your pieces. I know exactly what kind of material you have to inflict damage on my position. Putin's game, if you call it a game, it's more likely poker. Uh, he may hmm. win by having a very weak hand if he is arrogant enough to bluff. And the bluff means that you have to raise the stakes. And that's where, you know, Putin is superior to his counterpart in the free world. So many times, you know, Putin Hmm. won by bluffing because the opponents folded the cards. So is geopolitics today, is it chess or is it poker, Gary? Uh, It's unfortunately, it's it's more and more uh, poker. Uh, It's no, no offense meant. But the problem, again, with, with poker is that uh, it, it gives an, an, an advantage, unfair advantage to dictators and, 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 and uh, all form of socks around the world because they, they are less constrained. They don't care about parliament. They don't care about public opinion, uh, about free press. So they can make moves and bluff while the opposition on our side in the free world has to take in account all these factors. So it's a, it's a, an attempt of the free world to play chess by the rules. And on the other side, it's a push to change the game into poker. It's, it's a, mm. turn everything into a geopolitical casino. And that's what Putin <laughs> wants. Oh, you want gas. Okay, but what about Ukraine? What about Minsk? So he, he can move from one, one point to another. He doesn't care because he's, he makes decisions single-handedly. It's Russia Today is, is, is a personalized dictatorship that openly embrace fascist ideology, both domestically and internationally. So that's why seeing Scholz, Macron, meeting Biden or speaking to Biden over the phone. So Putin can react instantly, while all Western leaders, whether we agree with them or not, they know that they have their responsibilities, their obligations. Certain things are mandatory. So even Biden cannot make all the decisions. He has to go through the process. And while playing poker, it's it's gives Putin a huge advantage uh, because his response is quicker and very, very often it's 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 a decisive factor. So, as you know, um, I have been a huge fan and have quoted you many, many, many times over the last uh, five or six years, including in my book and uh, in, in other in columns, your your famous tweet from December 13th, 2016, which I'm looking at right now as uh, 66,000 retweets. And you wrote back in 2016. The point of modern propaganda isn't only to misinform or push an agenda. It is to exhaust your critical thinking, to annihilate truth. I feel like we've been living through that. You called that shot back in 2016. And really, this is the moment where we're at now where people look around and you say, what is true? What do I believe? Who do I listen to anymore? After all this time, have we figured this out yet? Because I don't think that we have. We're living through it, but we don't understand that the point of modern propaganda is not to convince you that A is true or B is true. It is to annihilate truth. It's to make you doubt your ability to know what is true. 
That that one tweet seems to sum up our time so thoroughly. Uh, unfortunately, we are far from winning this game, and Putin has succeeded in annihilating the truth because we have doubts. And today, America is so badly divided that the truth is what you hear from your favorite channel. Yeah, uh, and it's it's no longer you know the quality of information. So if you are listening to MSNBC, that's the truth. If you're listening to Tucker Carlson, that's the truth. And Americans lost an ability to hear each other, to compromise, to actually understand that there is a truth somewhere in the middle. And uh, we have to give credit for Putin and his KGB-run operation that they succeeded in weakening the free world way beyond any damage inflicted by Soviet Union during the Cold War because the enemy is within now. And uh, while during the Cold War there were certain things that both parties and most of Americans agreed upon. Uh, right now, I don't think you can just find uh, find a consensus on some key issues. No. And also, it's often it's it's kind of schizophrenia. It's uh, um, cognitive dissonance when you look uh, at the front page of the FoxNews.com and you have the the, the uh, words of Tucker Carlson, so blaming Biden for uh, not giving Putin what he wanted and just you know calling him a warmonger, and then you have uh, just another traditional Republican uh, saying, oh, Biden is too weak on Putin. And, yeah. this, and, and these two articles that are just, you know, one to another. Same happens, you know, on, on, on the left. Yeah. You have I'll... accusation of Biden being uh, too weak and, uh, and, and, and timid. And also, you know, far left claiming that uh, Biden continues with neoconservative politics. Yeah, a little bit of cognitive dissonance there. So, you know, one of the criticisms that I get uh, and that I think is legitimate is that, OK, we, we understand the problem. Um, we understand how terrible things are. And people say, but but give us some hope. Give us some idea. Are there are there initiatives out there that are actually making things better? That's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, because you you are very involved with this Renew Democracy initiative and you have something new. I, I really wanted to ask you about it, this new program called the Front Lines of Freedom. And this is a course, uh, tell me if I got this right, it's, it's, it's a course at Johns Hopkins re recently that you uh, that you presented that you know, Foundation of Freedom course at Johns Hopkins and it featured dissidents and activists around the world teaching people about the fundamentals of democracy and dictatorship, as well as freedom and unfreedom. And you're now hoping to expand that? I mean, is this is this one of the antidotes to what we have been discussing for the last half hour? I hope so. It all started with uh, the letter um, that was published on CNN, uh, the program that our joint program with CNN called Voices of Freedom, um, signed by uh, 52 dissidents from 28 oppressive countries. And the idea of the letter was to point out that America today, still today, with all the problems that we, we describe now, with all this uh, you know, in-house fighting, it's still the freest country in the world. And while many of us saw America years ago, decades ago, as the beacon of freedom, uh, even today, millions and millions of people worldwide are looking at America as the only hope to bring uh, freedom and prosperity to the world, even today. And uh, um, we thought that this letter could lead to, to a program that we hope will uh, spread around U.S. colleges, because 
while you know Americans are very good and just you know on, on pointing out at the ills of mm-hmm. modern American society, and of course uh, everybody is now is looking back at American history and and points out old evil like slavery and and many imperfections that caused significant social and political damage in America. We think it's fundamentally important, it's absolutely crucial to explain to this young audience, especially young audience, that at every given point, America, from, from, from the moment uh, uh, America was, was formed as a state uh, nearly 250 years ago, America was the leading force for democracy in the world. Yes, we know that in 1787, when the, when the Constitution was written, many things that were promised, they, they did not cover the whole American society. Slavery mm-hmm. was there. Women didn't have uh, voting rights. Absolutely. Terrible. But point me the country where these rights you know, were uh, respected. Again, America had an ability, thanks to founding fathers and to, to the documents that they penned more than two centuries ago, to resolve all these crises one by one domestically without any foreign uh, intervention. And when today we hear, oh, uh, America is oppressive, you know, if you keep claiming that the U.S. Is in, is in some way fundamentally oppressive, as many are saying, especially on the left, mm-hmm. you'll be giving a gift to dictators around the world who can turn to their opponents. To us, to dissidents, say, oh, democracy is no better than autocracy. And American democracy is the same as Chinese authoritarianism or even even worse. So the message that we are communicating, yes, you should talk about problems in America. You should point out at issues like police brutality. But it's a problem here while police brutality is a system in, in, in many parts of the world because only 20% of the population of our, on our planet today, by the Freedom House ranking, live in a, in a free countries. By the way, when, we, when we're doing these programs, we always hear, oh, do you count America as a free country? Oh, it's just, it's, it's mind-blowing. I mean, go and live elsewhere, you know? This is, yeah. this, <laughs> it's the, we want Americans, again, especially young Americans, to understand that they enjoy freedom that's unseen in, in most of the world. And people are willing to die even for the glimpse of the hope uh, of having this, these, these, these freedoms in many quarters, in Latin America, in Africa, in Europe, if you count Belarus or Russia uh, or, and, and Asia. Well, I think what's striking about this is in the course that you taught at uh, Johns Hopkins, it featured, you know, activists from Venezuela, Iran, Zimbabwe, uh, Uyghurs who had been imprisoned in the camp. And and really, it helps Americans to see the U.S. through their eyes, you know, that, you know, we're sitting around, you know, reading the 1619 Project about how oppressive America is. And these folks are saying, oh, you want to know what real oppression looks like? Um, this is what real oppression looks like. Plus, you know, remind us that during their darkest days that, that the American democracy actually inspired them. So, you know, your point that the authoritarians would like to be able to cite people who talk about how oppressive we are, but also... Divided societies are easier to subdue, uh, so obviously it's in their interest to sow dissension. And I, I, if I can just get a little ahead, I mean, one of the things that I really like about what you're doing here is that you're essentially saying, look, you need to understand that if 
we really do think this is an existential threat to democracy. We might have to work with people you don't like. Uh, you're going to have to prioritize this broader struggle for democracy over your personal policy preferences. And that ego is the enemy of unity, that we need to actually do that. And that's kind of tough, isn't it? You know, these days to be able to say, OK, you know, there are, are things we differ on, but can we focus on the threat that's right in front of us now? Absolutely. That's that's the that's the main idea behind this course. American democracy is worth fighting for. And it's still, you know, the uh, the freest country in the world that offers opportunities to our people of, you know, all creeds, no matter race, gender, uh, ethnicity. America, is it perfect? Absolutely not. But there's no perfection in this universe. But is as U.S. dollar is a reserve currency in the world, not because it's strong, but because it's stronger than any other currency. So that's that's American democracy. And hearing from people who s- survived the hell of Uyghurs concentration camps, we're talking about concentration camps. The story of this woman who was sterilized and who survived by miracle the horrors in 21st century of Uyghur concentration camp. That you know remind us only of Holocaust. It's that's a message, but the problem is, oh, it's this is we still American corporations that are so vocal about social justice in America, and there they see no problems of collecting money from Chinese government. So uh, or or um, Leopoldo Lopez who spent seven years in military prison in Venezuela, or Pastor Ivan Mavariri who spent years in in Zimbabwe prison in Zimbabwe. So these people talk about freedom because they earn their right to talk about freedom. This is not, you know, out Christ, you know, in the colleges, in college campuses. Oh, America is oppressive. I mean, hell, you you don't know what oppression is. No, I don't think there's any idea, but, you know, the hypocrisy of the American corporations who are woke domestically, but completely indifferent when it comes to... uh, You know, the Chinese genocide is striking. I noticed that you are interested in a lot of other issues. You know, we've been talking about Ukraine. We've been talking about democracy. You were also interested in, and this may seem like a a digression, but I don't think it is. You were also interested in what happened in San Francisco last night, where the members of the school board uh, turned out to be way too progressive, way too woke. Even for San Francisco, they were recalled with more than 70 percent of the vote. Put put this into some context. What happened in San Francisco? It's a backlash. I think that's the after uh, these tragic events in 2020. So it was George Floyd, and uh, the country was pushed in one direction, and it was pushed too hard. And uh, this uh, tragedy had been uh, used by the far left to install their agenda. Afghanistan, uh, in uh, Venezuela, in Russia, in Belarus. It's a long list. I'm happy to see American activists, you know, uh, fighting for their rights here. But- and, and especially in, in, in San Francisco. I mean, it's interesting yeah. that, that in one of the most liberal communities in the entire country, they decided this was crazy. The schools are shut down and the school board spent its time trying to rename what more than 40 schools. And as you point out, it really was an attempt to uh, denigrate and rewrite American history, to basically say that, that our history was so tainted that we needed to take all of this time and all of this effort in order to uh, er- erase it. And the fact that the, you know, even fellow progressives said this was crazy, this was too much, is, is an interesting, interesting political moment for us, isn't it? Hopefully, maybe that's, that's a point of reconciliation. 
That's the idea of our program is just to rally Americans behind the American values. And again, recognizing imperfection of American democracy, but also recognizing its its invaluable contribution to democracy worldwide. And uh, I, I can only hope that the common sense will prevail and people from both sides will get together and and form a strong center that will be in the position to deflect all the attacks coming from the radicals, whether they come from the right or the left. Gary Kasparov, as you know, is a former world chess champion, the founder of the Renew Democracy Initiative, chairman of the Human Rights Foundation. Gary Kasparov, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for the conversation. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.